All right, I encourage you to grab a Bible and go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's probably a, a red one in front of you. Uh, Passage of Scripture is also in your bulletin. So we're looking at verses 16 to 17. I've given you some extra passages in your bulletin. We'll, we'll kind of reference those through the course of the message. Uh, but I really encourage you to take that home with you, and maybe you can use it as a way to meditate, think more, uh, and reflect upon more of what we talked about uh, this morning. So we stand in honor of reading God's Word. So if you're able to do that, just want to encourage you to, to stand up with me. And today it's just two verses, so nobody will pass out. Amen? So we're working through David. I feel like we're reading half the Bible sometimes. So it's kind of nice just get two verses. Yeah, don't have to worry about locked knees. All right, here we go. Verse 6, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are, we're just thankful for you. We're thankful for your beauty that's put on display uh, during this fall season. God, you are a beautiful God, you love uh, things that are creative, things that are just eye-pleasing. So thank you, God, that you grace us with that beautiful, wonderful gift for both the righteous and the unrighteous. And so, Lord, help us today as we look at this passage of Scripture. And once again, we we need your help to understand. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're joining, just joining us, we're, we're kind of working uh, through the, the five solas over the next few weeks. So we got scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and glory of God alone. So sola is kind of a strange word, right? It's not a word that we uh, normally have. And, um, and so sola kind of means basically alone. It's, you know, think of um, Han Sola, right? <laughs> or, you know, I'm fl- flying sola, right? If you get kind of that, you get kind of the idea of what we're talking about. And so, so these five solos that we're looking at, this is not necessarily uh, Martin Luther created these, right? It's not like he came up with these five solos during kind of the Reformational period. But what, what has happened is beyond that, after this, reflecting on this, people kind of captured the essence of the Reformation through these five solos. That's what it did here. Martin Luther is the monk back in 1517 that started this Reformation uh, that has changed the entire world and has changed us, even what we do today as a result of the Reformation that took place uh, 500 years ago. So maybe, maybe you're here and you're going like, why in the world are we celebrating this? Number one, it's 500 years ago, so it's kind of a big deal, right? And we're still be- like benefiting from the effects of the Reformation 500 years later, so it's, it's kind of a big deal. Like We need to kind of like talk about this, at least make mention and spend a little time. And second reason is because it captures the essence of Christianity. More importantly, it captures how someone is saved, how someone is made right with God, how someone, this is the big word that is used here, that's used you know, theologically, how someone is justified. That's what drove Martin Luther to basically nail the 95 Theses on that door. Like, that's what troubled him. Like, how can I be made right with God? So at the core of these five solas, at the core of the Reformation is answering this question, is there a way, is there hope that a, a holy, just, righteous God can have a relationship with me who is unjust, unholy, and unrighteous, and know beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that he's 100% for me forever. Is that possible? That's, in essence, what the Reformation is answering. How can I be made right with God? How can I be saved? So last we talked about Scripture alone, which is basically the foundation of our authority. Everything that we're talking about comes from the text, like we established that. We, we sit under, not stand over the Word of God. And so today, I want us to look at the second one, and that is faith alone, or sola Fide. I think that's how you say that. doesn't matter. We're not going to use that because that's like Latin language. We don't speak like that. Amen. That's part of what the Reformation did so we can speak in plain language so that people can understand what I'm talking about up here. Amen. Okay, good. Good thing I don't have to speak in Latin because it would be a horrible time. So faith alone. And these two verses that we're looking at are the two verses that radically changed Martin Luther's life. And these two verses are the thesis statement for the entire book of Romans. So if you want to know what Romans is unpacking, what Paul is unpacking to this little letter uh, to the church at Rome, these are the two verses that are like like the thesis statement. This is what he's going to unpack over the next 15, 16 chapters. And so when you read, uh, especially Romans, but anytime you read a letter that Paul has written, you want to read it conversationally, all right? You want to read it, and this is what I mean by conversation. You just want to ask questions, like Like Paul wants you to ask questions as you're reading his letter. And and you'll find that's how he writes. He's kind of anticipating the questions that the readers are going to ask or raise. And then he responds to it because it's kind of weird. It's like, like what are you responding to? Like I don't feel like there's a conversation. I'm missing something. So if if you would go home and read Romans chapter 5 and then read Romans 6 verse 1, it's kind of weird. It's like I don't know where this fits, what he's answering a question that the readers have, and that's kind of what we want to do this morning. So I want to kind of walk through these two verses conversationally, asking questions so that we can better understand what Paul has to say here. So let's start off in verse 15, kind of as best we can catch the context of what is going on here. So this is what Paul says, this is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel. And so just in case we forget what the gospel is, the gospel is the good news of what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. Christianity is not about what you do. Christianity is about what has been done. All other religion is gonna tell you this is what you've gotta do in order for you to be in right relationship with God. The essence of Christianity is news. It's not advice. No one gets excited about giving advice, amen? No one gets excited about hearing advice especially parenting advice, amen, from the parents in this room or any kind of advice, right? But we all get excited about hearing good news. And that's why Paul is eager, eager to come to Rome and speak and preach this gospel because it's news about what has been done, not advice about what you have to do. And he goes on in verse 16, he says this, I'm not ashamed of this gospel that I'm getting ready to preach to you, I'm not ashamed of it. So the first question is this, why in the world would Paul be ashamed of the gospel? What is it about the gospel that there might be some shame attached to that? So what is it? What's going on there? Well, I'll tell you why it would be shameful possibly or why Paul may feel shame about the gospel is because this, the gospel is offensive. It was a stumbling block to the Jews and it was foolishness to the Greeks. And even today, it's absolutely offensive. Why? Because there's bad news, right? For you to see that this is good news, you've got to hear and embrace the bad news. And the bad news is basically this, is that all of us in this room are moral, spiritual failures. 
Now, a lot of amens on that one, amen, right? It's like, let someone else say amen, right? We are. All of us in this room are moral, spiritual failures, and we're so bad that it took the death of his son, Jesus Christ, to save us. And that message is offensive not only when Paul is writing this letter, but in 2017. Because it's never good news until we embrace the bad news. But Paul says what? I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Yeah, I know everybody else is telling me I should be, but I'm not. So why? Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Well, he gives us two reasons. There's the conversation. Are you following me? I'm asking questions to the text, and then we see the answers in the text. So why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? We see two reasons on why he's not ashamed in these two verses. The first one's found in the second half of verse 16. Look what he says here. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So if you've got your own Bible or even in the bulletin, you can do this. I would underline power of God and I would circle believe because believe is kind of like the big deal. It's what blew Martin Luther away. It's the issue of faith alone. Same word. Uh, that's used here. So the first reason why Paul is not ashamed is because it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Now notice, Paul does not say this, that it brings power. That the gospel brings power. That's not what Paul says here. He doesn't say that the gospel has power. Paul says the gospel is actually the power of God. It not only announces the way for us to be made right with God, it actually actualizes it. It makes it happen. Are you following that? The gospel, the content of this message, the good news of what God has done through his son Jesus Christ, when it's announced, it's not only announcing the way to get right with God, but when it's received by faith, it actualizes it. It brings you. It makes it happen. That's what Paul is saying here. It's not something that brings power or has power. It is the power of God. I love how one commentator, his name is Michael Bird, says this. He says this. The gospel manifests God's death-defeating, curse-reversing, evil-vanquishing, devil-crushing, sin-cleansing, life-giving, love-forming, people-uniting, and I love this one, super, uber, mega-grace power. I just want to say that one more time. People-uniting, super, uber, mega-grace power that results in salvation. That's why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God to bring change and renewal and transform your life. Best way for me to kind of illustrate this, you might have a clue what these little things are up here. Peppercorn, peppercorn, all right? These are little bitty things, right? They are so stinking small, and I don't want to drop them right now. You can't even see that, can you? Some of you guys can. But way back there, you pop this little bad boy in your mouth, and you chomp on it, what's going to happen? I'm not going to do that this morning, all right? I may do it in the 11, you know, so if you want to come back, you can see. But yeah, most of us know what's going to happen. Our mouth's going to be turned on fire, right? But as long as it stays out here, as long as it stays in this little place, it looks like 
something that's harmless, right? It looks like a piece of dirt, right? It's like, what can that do? But as soon as you receive it, as soon as you taste it, as soon as you put it in your teeth and you chomp on it, the power bursts out and it sets your mouth on fire. That's exactly what Paul is saying here about the gospel. It can seem interesting. It can seem like a nice theory and philosophy, but when you take it in personally, the power is released, and it radically changes your life. And there are many of you in this room who can stand up here and give evidence and witness to that reality. Your marriage would not be the way it is right now without the power of the gospel. Your life would not be the way it is without the power of the gospel. Your, your place, your standing, what's going on in your world would not be where it is without the power of the gospel. Most of you in this room could stand up here and give evidence to the reality that the gospel is the power of God. That's the first reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. The second reason is where we're landing, all right? This is the big deal. This is the thing that blew Martin Luther away. It is this. Look at verse 17. And I don't think it's on your screen. It's one of those I forgot to put up there. So look in your, in your bulletin. Four. So once again, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God. Secondly, verse 17, four. That four connects to why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Another reason. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. So there's a righteousness from God that is revealed in the gospel, and that's why I'm not ashamed of it. So what in the world is Paul talking about here? Well, this is what he's saying here, is that this idea of a righteousness from God is talking about a kind of like a status before God. That there's a way for me to be made right holy, righteous before God, even though I'm unrighteous and I'm wicked and I'm ungodly, that there is a righteousness that is a gift. It's a, it's a declaration over me. So I'm not made righteous, but there's a way that God can look and declare me righteous, that God can clothe me with righteousness, that he can, you know, you know put righteousness on me. And that is through, and we'll get to this in a minute, but I'm gonna go ahead and say it, through faith in Jesus Christ, that's it. So even though I'm ungodly, I'm sinful, and I'm wicked, there's a way in which God can look at me and see righteousness, and see wholeness, and see beauty. Because he has declared me righteous. Now, you know, if you're kind of following along, kind of having a conversation, that doesn't sound like a big deal, right? It does. It doesn't sound like something that would radically change someone's life so much so that he started this movement, right, to reform the church. Like, whoop de doo that I can be declared righteous or I get a, a sort of like an alien righteousness now becomes mine. It just doesn't sound like a big deal unless you're convinced of your own unrighteousness, See, that's some problem with modern world, right? It's a problem with all of us in this room, including me. Like, this doesn't, you know, rock our lives. It doesn't like, amen, yeah, because we're not convinced of our own unrighteousness. We live in suburbia. We're nice. We're kind. We're good people. We don't beat our kids. We don't beat our wives. We, like, our husbands, whichever, right? If you do... We might need to have a conversation, but 
But the reason why this doesn't blow us away is because most of us in this room are not convinced of our own unrighteousness. We're not convinced of our own wickedness. We're not convinced of how sinful and ungodly we are. We think we're pretty decent people who mess up a little bit. Well, I'm like, I don't have time to convince you of that, but I, but I am going to read a lot of what Paul says here, and I'm just praying that the word of God convinces you. And if you're a Christian here, I pray that you will feel the weight of your own wickedness and ungodliness and sinfulness so that you will marvel in the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. Because that's what Paul does. Like he says, okay, like, man, this is a, this is a beautiful gift that God has given to us, and I'm going to show you how beautiful it is because I'm going to show how rotten you are. That's what he's doing here. And so from chapter 1 to chapter 2, man, it's like not a happy letter. You're not reading this going, man, I'm just so glad I read this devotionally. I just feel so good about myself. No, you read chapter 1 and 2, you feel pretty depressed if you're really reading it and seeing yourself in it. So let me me just read this, and may God convince us here. Look what he says following this statement, this beautiful statement that there's a righteousness that comes from God, an alien righteousness that could be ours. Look what he says here in verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his internal powers, his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. No one does. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks And they began to think up foolish ideals of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. They instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So what did God do? He abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things which each other's bodies, they traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the images of God, created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. And he continues on. I felt like it'd be good for me to shorten that up so we're not all majorly depressed, right? But sometimes when we read this, we read this like, that's someone else. Like, that's kind of extreme, Paul. I'm not doing that. I don't have a bird in my house. I'm bowing down to it. That's just out there, man. That's... That's crazy people. Well, if that's you, then guess what? Paul has something to say about those that think they're pretty good people and religious. He continues on, and he talks about the Jews, who in this time were really good people, moral people. And they looked at Gentiles and Greeks and said, man, you guys are really out there. You're freakazoids. You're not as great as I am. But then Paul says, oh, hey. If that's what you're thinking, guess what? I got a message for you. Look at verse 17. You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law and you boast about your relationship, your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you've been taught this in law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach the children the ways of God, for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Verse 21. Well then, if you teach others, I'm adding because I think that's what Paul would be doing right now, right? Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? Get the big log out of your eye. Is what he's saying. 
Don't you teach yourself. You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? Come on. You tell others, or you say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? Are you so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it? No wonder the scripture says this, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. So he's attacking irreligious people and religious people, and then he puts them all in one little basket in Romans 3, verse 9, he says this, well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? Or here you go, translation, well then, should we conclude that those who vote Republican, who go to church every week, who are really nice people, kind to their neighbors, don't beat their families, whatever it is, should we say that we're better than all those other people that are bowing down to these birds and reptiles? No. No. Not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles are under the power of sin, as Scripture says. He says that over and over because he's saying, like, look, I'm not making this up. This is not new. This is in the Old Testament. No one, no one, no one is righteous. No one, not even one. And Martin Luther got this, guys. He, he got his own unrighteousness and his wickedness, and it almost drove him insane. I mean, there's stories that tell us that, there's a picture up here, it, there's, it's a Latin phrase, but it, it means holy stairs. I'm not even try to say the Latin phrase here, because I would really butcher it. But this is what, based on what we understand, these are the supposedly, possibly the same stairs that Jesus ascended to when he was before Pontius Pilate, and they were moved from Jerusalem to Rome. And so the priests in this time claimed that God would forgive sins for those who climbed the stairs on their knees. So that God would forgive, you know, declare you not guilty if you would climb these stairs on your knees. There's 28 steps. And so Martin Luther did this, repeating the Lord's Prayer, kissing each step seeking peace with God. And he got to the top and he said, who knows whether this is true? And there was no peace for him. Look, Martin Luther had to do something to appease his accusing conscience. Because he knew his own wickedness. He knew his own rebellion. He knew his own sin. He knew his own ungodliness. And I would say this, that maybe we don't go to extremes like this, but all of us are doing something to shut up our conscience. All of us are doing something to silence that voice that is repeatedly saying, you're not enough. You're not making it. You're, you're a failure. You keep blowing it. You are sinful. You are broken. You're trying to do something to shut that conscience up. And maybe that's why we like our busy lives. Maybe that's why we like our chaotic lives. Maybe that's why we love social media. Because it distracts us from ourselves. 
But when Martin Luther read these two verses with that understanding of who he is, dude, it, it brought hope to him. He began to realize for the first time that I don't have to do something in order to get righteousness. I don't have to do something in order to appease God. I don't have to do something in order to make God happy. That there is something that God can give me that I can never work for. I can get this righteousness that I'm longing for as a gift. I can be declared righteous even though I've got a messed up life. Even though I'm still sinful and wicked, God can look at me and see me with the righteousness of Jesus. And all I have to do is believe. That's it. All I have to do is put faith in Christ. Look what he says here. Paul says here in verse 17, so the righteousness from God has been revealed and that righteousness is by faith. From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's it. And your faith is not the work you do in order to get this righteousness. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, you find out, guess what? Faith is a gift. God gives you the faith in order to respond in repentance and faith toward Jesus so that you could receive this alien righteousness. And God now looks at you as holy, perfect, without blemish. As one who's kept all the laws, even though sin still remains. He's not made you righteous. He's declared you righteous. Faith is the conduit. It's the pipe. It's the, it's the channel. It's the, I was looking for an extension cord, like electric cord up here. I can't find one, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Faith is like the, you know, the electrical cord you put in the, in the wall socket. It doesn't contain the power, but it gets access to the power. That's what faith is is and Paul talks about this over and over throughout the book of Romans and I'll just show you a few of those verses after he gives us all the bad news in Romans 2 chapter 1 and 2 look what he says in chapter 3 but now a righteousness from God apart from the law translation now a righteousness from God that's apart from good works I don't have to go up steps 28 times on my knees in order to earn something from God no there's a there's a righteousness from God that's apart from law. And it's been made known to you by the law and the prophets. So I'm not making this up is what Paul's saying. Like this has been the, the, day, the, the deal since the beginning. He goes on. Righteousness from God comes through how? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all of belief. Go down to verse 27. Where then is boasting? We're going to go around and how awesome am I, right? Are we going to go do that? Are we going to be arrogant Christians? No. Why? It's excluded on what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. It goes on in Romans 4. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Like your boss doesn't come to you and say, hey, here's your gift of salary. You say, you're a moron, right? I just put 60 hours of work in. You, that's not a gift. That's obligation. You give that. You give me my salary. I work for this, right? However, to the man who does not work but trusts, same word as faith, God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited, declared as righteousness. Romans 5 one, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what Paul is saying. 
I get just before I am just. You following that? I get just before I am just. And how do I get just? By faith. Period. This is what Martin Luther said about this passage. And it's quite lengthy, but we can handle it. This is what he said. I greatly long to understand Paul's letter to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would ever please him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather I hated and murmured against him. At last, as I meditated day and night on the relationship of the words, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the righteous person shall live by faith. I began to understand that righteousness of God as that by which the righteous person lives by the gift of God. This immediately made me feel as though I had been born again and as though I had entered through Open gates into paradise itself. From that moment, I saw the whole face of Scripture in a new light. And now, where I had once hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, I began to love and extol it as the sweetest of phrases so that this passage in Paul became the very gate of paradise to me. That I could be given a right standing by God as a gift that is through faith alone. So what does this, what does this mean for us? Look, if, if you're not a Christian here, this is what I would encourage you to think through or do with this passage. I mean, if you go and, and ask any average person in our town, all right, any average person in our town, what, is the, what do they think the essence of Christianity is? If you go ask them that question. What do you think the essence of Christianity is? All right, this may be a high guess, but I would guess nine out of 10. Nine out of 10 people will say something like this. You try to be like Jesus. You try to do the right thing. You try to be good, kind, moral. What is the essence of Christianity? Nine out of 10 people will say something about what you have to do. Because that's, that's not news. <laughs> that's advice. And that's not the essence of Christianity. Because if that's the essence of Christianity, if Christianity is about what I got to do, so the essence of Christianity is about me trying to be holy, kind, gracious, good. If that's the essence of Christianity, you have one of three responses. One is you just be indifferent to it, which is some of your all's responses in this room. Like, oh yeah, I've heard that all my life. Whoop-de-doo. That's a dangerous place to be. Number two, you can respond like Martin Luther. Okay, if if the essence of Christianity is I gotta work at it, that gummit, I'm gonna work at it, right? And you'll end up like Martin Luther, you'll find out that it's absolutely impossible and you'll be crushed. You can't do it. Or you can respond like the Pharisees who convinced themselves that they were doing it, right? Like in, in spite of all the, the contradictions internally, they were able to shut that voice up 
And they were able to convince themselves and others that they are doing it and doing it really well. And if you're, that's you in this room, then guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to become an arrogant, prideful person where no one wants to hang out with you. And a horrible testimony of what Christianity is. But there's a better way, right? That's what Paul is helping us see here. There's a better way. There's the essence of Christianity is not what you do, but what has been done. And you become a Christian by receiving, by putting your faith in what has already been done for you. And even that faith is a gift from God. Luther calls it the sweet exchange. It's so beautiful. Jesus becomes something that he's not, that is sin, so that you can become something that you're not, and that is righteous. And it's all a gift. Christianity is about what has been done, not what you have to do. So my encouragement for you is to receive. Put your trust. Stop looking at yourself and look outside of yourself and see the work that's been done for you and receive this precious, wonderful gift. Trust Jesus. Faith alone, he will look at you in spite of all the mess that's going on in your interior world and see you as righteous. Trust him. If you're a Christian here today, then my encouragement for you, and we say this a lot here, all right, and, and so it's okay, we can kind of repeat things because we always forget. Like, we never move beyond this. This, this doctrine here, it's what we just unpacked, a teaching. We never move beyond that we are made right with God by faith alone. We don't move beyond that. I would argue that it's through us growing an understanding of that that empowers the holiness and the kind of lifestyle that we want to live that brings about flourishing in our life. So I would say it like this. My position, right, my position as righteous before God empowers my progress. I'll say it again like this. My declaration, God's declaration of me as righteous is what empowers my devotion, my standing, my standing before God. Romans 5, 1 and 2, read it. My standing before God as fully righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ empowers my sanctification. And here's what I want to do. Like, I think sometimes, if you've been in church for a long time, you get kind of a, um, a real distorted vision of what Christian maturity looks like. And so this is my best attempt at trying to show this. All right, so you can laugh at it if you want to because I'm safe with Jesus. Amen. So here's, here's like what I think we think. All right, we may not articulate this consciously, we may not go around, hey, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. You become a Christian down there at the bottom, and your entire Christian life is this upward mobility to holiness. You just get better and better and better, more successful. My little thing I like to say is, da-da-da, right? It's what you, that's your Christian life. It's just always up. It's amazing. You're on cloud nine, 24-7. You're always happy, joyful. Woo! Hallelujah, right? That's that's people's visions. And so look, here's the thing. I don't think a lot of us in this room would say that's what we believe, but we live that way. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean we live that way? What are we talking about? Because we know what's going on in us. Sin still remains. We still have struggles. We still have doubts. We still have frustrations. We, we still have those same sins we keep going back to. And then we have in our subconscious that I'm supposed to be like that. I'm never measuring up. Somewhere we've got this broken understanding of maturity that I'm never measuring up, which then leads us to what? This, this, this false guilt or this low-grade guilt that we feel all the time that robs us of any joy. 
Like, I would say it's one of the reasons why most Christians are not real joyful. It's because they have a jacked up understanding of spiritual maturity. They have this in their mind, that I need to be soaring high. I shouldn't be struggling with the same sins over and over, but I still am. God must be perpetually angry with, frustrated with me all the time. And that's rooted in a false understanding of what maturity looks like. Here's a better picture. Thank you for laughing, all right? It really encourages me, all right? And if this would work out like I wanted it to, the first one was supposed to come up as the bottom one, the green one there. And then I looked at that yesterday, I'm going, you know what, that's still too nice. I mean, it really is. That looks too perfect. I mean, you got ups and downs, but the lines are nice and nice. They're just nice, put together well, you know? And then I drew the top one <laughs> with my hand, well, with my mouse and... But that's what it's like, isn't it? That's what it's like. It's like you're, you know, you get take the, the awkward dance as Matt, Matt Chandler talks about sanctification, the, you know, the one step forward and two steps back. That's, that's growth. It is. That's why I did the, first, the, the, the top one there. You're kind of like circling back around. I mean, you got some movement going towards something, but man, you're, you're a mess. And so, what do you need? Like, if that's your reality, then, then what do you need? I need someone that's outside of me that knows all of me and declares me righteous. That's what I need. That you're safe, that you're secure, that you're loved. That's what I need. Because it's in that declaration that empowers me to step back into that mess, right? Like Christianity is not like come as you are and stay as you are. That's, a, that's, that's stupid, right? It's just dumb. Read Romans 6. No, Christianity is come as you are and we're going to work on this together, right? Yeah, we're, there's going to be change in your life. You're going to see some victories, but you're going to see some failings, but we're going to keep working at it. And that truth, that truth, of justification by faith alone is what empowers me because I need someone outside of me telling me and declaring me that I'm safe, that I'm whole, that I'm righteous, that I'm holy, that fully knows me, right? It's, it's similar to this. I remember a guy saying this a couple weeks ago at a conference, and, and maybe some of you will connect with this, maybe some of you won't, that's okay. But here's, here's what it is. It, it, like, and I love 20-somethings in here. If you're in your 20s and you're Newly married, you guys. I love you guys. I married you guys, so I obviously love you. All right, so, so I'm going to use these guys, Gabe and Rachel. If they came to me and says, hey, Lyle, you know, I've been watching you, parent. Man, you're such a good dad. You do such a good job. In one sense, it's encouraging, right? It is. But they don't have any kids, right? <laughs> they have no stinking idea, right? Love you, all right? They don't. They don't have any idea how hard it is, how difficult it is. The sleepless nights you have. But when a Mark and Sharon Wardlaw, who are about 10 years beyond me, look at me and say to my wife and I, man, you're doing a good job. There's weight to that. And it helps me step in and parent. Why? It's someone that knows the difficulty of parenting and knows me, right? And is able to speak truth in my life. That's what doctrine of justification by faith alone does for us as Christians. That we can take that messy top chart and step in, and step in.
Say, yeah, <laughs> I blew it. But I'm safe with you. I'm secure with you. I'm righteous because of the work of Jesus. Not my work. Christianity is not about what you do. The essence of Christianity is about what's been done. That's why Martin Luther said this. Wherefore, it ought to be the first concern of every Christian to lay aside all confidence in works and grow in knowledge, not of works, but of Christ Jesus who suffered and rose for you. So maybe what you can do because of what has been done, amen, let's take Romans 5 verses 1 and 2 and memorize them this week. Look what it says. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace. Just think about that. You've, you've got peace. You can sit and the chaos that's going on in your world, the chaos that's going on in your interior world, you have peace with God. You have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access. We can, we can come to him. We can have communion with him. Why? Because of my righteousness? Because I, I killed it yesterday and being a Christian, right? No, because Jesus killed it. <laughs> By faith into his grace in which we now stand and we rejoice. We can have joy. We can have peace. We have access, communion, and we have joy. May the Lord take that verse and use it in your heart this week. Let's pray together.